package number 555. Whenever we have um, a Thanksgiving service in the sense of someone's funeral, there's always a tribute uh, and a message. We've already had the tribute to Beulah, and uh, this is the message, and I hope that all of us will be able to get something from it. Um, Psalm 23 is often a psalm that we would focus on at a funeral, but today we're focusing on in the sense of giving thanks to God for 52 faithful years of ministry and service in Beulah Home, and also trying to look to Him now for the future. A young boy, misquoting Psalm 23, once said, The Lord is my shepherd, what more shall I want? And actually, I think that's the theme that runs right through the psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, what more shall I want? Therefore, we see in verse 2 that I shall not want of care or daily nourishment. Verse 3, I shall not want of restoration and justice. Verse 4, I shall not want of comfort in the face of death. Verse 5, I shall not want of safety when life gets hard or difficult. And verse 6, I shall not want of a home to go to when life is over. Amen. That could be the shortest sermon ever if we just left that there. Because that's the truth unpacked very quickly. So if the Lord is my shepherd, what more shall I want? Uh, This psalm is probably the best known part of the Bible. Memorized by children often before they can read, sung at funerals, been the theme tune at umpteen weddings, as well as been a source of great comfort when recited by or to the dying. So, introduction the Lord leads. Warren Wearsby um, very helpfully comments that each of the Old Testament names of God is seen in this psalm. Let's just bring them up there. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. Jehovah Rapha, the Lord will heal or restore. Jehovah Shalom, the Lord our peace. Jehovah Sekenu, the Lord our righteousness. Jehovah Shammah, the Lord is there. Jehovah Nissi, the Lord our banner. And the one that's contained in verse 1 of Psalm 23, Jehovah Ra, the Lord my shepherd. No is there in the original language, just simply the Lord, my shepherd. In other words, Jesus Christ is to his sheep all they'll ever need. Note that I didn't say that he provides all they ever want, or even that he provides all that they need, but that he is all they ever need. Today, if you have Jesus... You've got what you need in life. No matter how accumulated your earthly wealth, or how intelligent you may be, how well studied, how healthy you may be, if you don't have Jesus, you have nothing. If you don't have Jesus, you have nothing. In all aspects of my existence here on earth as a person, possessing body, soul, and spirit, the idea conveyed here in the psalm and throughout the Bible is that God satisfies my physical needs, he comforts my anxious thoughts, and he ministers to all my spiritual requirements. Some of you may differ in your definition of what makes humans human, but if you'll bear with me, my understanding is that what I am is in technical terms, a psychosomatic unity consisting of body, soul, and spirit. Some of you may want to take debate with me uh, somewhere else. Love to do that. Um, I have a body. The stuff. And, And he makes provision 
My shepherd makes provision for all my physical needs. My body is the place where I experience the senses of seeing, hearing, feeling, tasting, smelling. Um, I was taught that in primary school. There's nothing new there for you. And any of these can be affected by a number of different things in our physical world. But they can also be affected by things in our psychological uh, or, or from spiritual influences. I also have a soul in which he makes provision for all my psychological needs. The soul is that place where I believe, uh, particularly I reflect the created image of God characteristics of understanding, affections, and volition, or intellect, emotion, and will, if you'll have it that way. Now, in the Garden of Eden, before man sinned, these characteristics of understanding, affections, and volition were in complete harmony with that of God, in whose nature they were created to reflect. But after the fall, when Adam and Eve sinned, and mankind was separated physically from God uh, and lost touch with the love of God that kept these aspects of life in in check, that something went completely awry, and we were left to our own devices. I also have a spirit. Some people say there's no difference between the soul and the spirit. I I, I would um, gently disagree with you. Uh, God makes provision for all my spiritual needs. The spirit is the central control center that ought to govern and influence all aspects of my physical or my psychological live life. I'm not just what I eat, I am what I think. And the Spirit can influence that. The Spirit's the place where dwells my conscience, that uh, ability for sensitivity, creativity, motivation, insight, and comprehension. As I unpack this a little bit further in terms of what the psalmist is saying as the Lord, as shepherd, um, Just take hold of this statement. What motivates a person on the inside, i.e. the spirit, the central control room of my life, that will be seen in the actions on the outside. Whatever the motivations of my heart, as opposed to my soul, my heart, my spirit, whatever motivates me there, that will be seen in actions on the outside. So human beings who aren't born of the spirit, i.e. born from above, don't have the balance in their life that God intends them to have. Now, it may be that you are a born-again Christian, but because you've um, allowed the physical drive, that that physical appetite to lead, whether it's physical for food or exercise or sex or whatever, some other form of physical gratification in which the five senses uh, determine whether or not it's pleasurable or to be sought after. If you allow that to lead you, even as a Christian... Uh, you can reflect much more the ability to, to, to be of the old nature that has been crucified with Christ on the cross. But you can live just simply for the temporal, for the physical. Also, uh, um, you may be a Christian, that if you, you haven't got the right thoughts about who God is and how he works by his spirit in our lives, we can become anxious about all sorts of stuff. The most extreme is that, that we can be anxious about death. But you know, Theoretically, we can know from God's word that as Christians, we've got that bit of our experience, we've got it nailed. Jesus says, death is but a doorway into which you enter into my presence. And yet even as Christians, we can come to that doorway and go, whoa, I'm a bit scared about this. Because we've never really applied theoretically what we know to be true from God's word into the experience of having God's word become spirit to our lives. One of of my... um, Bible College principals, the Reverend uh, Dr. Oakley, Ivor Oakley, he said, uh, as, as being called into pastoral ministry, you will never be able to comfort someone as they approach death unless you've dealt with the issue personally. 
Uh, that's true in any sense, pastorally, trying to help someone. If you haven't dealt with the issues pertaining to you, where your weakness and vulnerabilities are, you can't really help someone else. You might read God's word to them, but you've got to have it nailed down in such a way so that we know this is true. And they can see that we've got confidence and faith to trust it. So no matter how hard people try, without the Spirit, they're destined to fall. Let me give you an illustration. I love charts. You know that my background is in building and maps and plans and all that sort of thing. Um, let's put up some words on the screen here. In Genesis 1, 26, 27, it said, God said, let us make man in our image. Uh, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Uh, using the triangle to symbolize God there, because uh, God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, and it's equally sided because it, they're one in essence. So we've got God there, uh, and God created us in love. He created mankind, um, I say in love, to reflect who he is with a, a will, intellect, and emotion, because God is um, he's not a physical thing, he's a spiritual thing. So we put a little cloud around him to show that we're not talking about a physical uh, apparition here. So when Adam and Eve sinned, can we put up the rest of that just so we can talk it through? God is love. Uh, he creates mankind in his own image, and he's created in love with the same, to reflect the same will, intellect, and emotion as, as um, God does. But then man violates that love in the fall. And so mankind then is left to his own devices. Just put up that last part of the slide there. That's great. So he's left to his self or his ego to run his life. And all human beings remain in that separated state from God until through the power of Christ's death on the cross at Calvary, which by, the, by which the penalty for our sin was fully paid, his love can re-enter the human heart. Uh, on our part, it requires repentance and faith. On God's part, it requires the power of the Holy Spirit um, to come in and make Jesus real to us. And so the person is born again, or is born from above, or, or elsewhere described as born of the Spirit, where Jesus becomes the Lord and becomes shepherd to us. So Jesus is Lord and shepherd. That's what true conversion is. You've heard the church speak about true conversion and whether somebody's really saved or not. Well, I really believe that when you're once saved, you're always saved. But I believe you can have a kind of um, what appears to be like a pseudo salvation experience where you might have a religious experience. It may even have been the Holy Spirit. It may even have been Christ that came close to the, to the edges of your life and somehow touched that and possibly even for a season affected it. But the Bible says that when the Holy Spirit truly comes into the central part of my existence, i.e. into the control room, into the Spirit, then I'm saved and kept forever. And the evidence of that is growth and progress in the things of God, that God shatters through all that sin violated in my life, and Jesus Christ can become my Savior. So what does it mean then for the Lord, um, in a true conversion experience, to become my shepherd? There's some uh, very interesting insight to be gleaned from something that Philip Keller writes in a little book called A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. Um, Philip Keller was himself a shepherd, became a pastor and an author, and, and he says this, and uh, let's hear it from an expert. It's almost impossible for sheep to lie down unless certain requirements are met. Uh, and of course, the psalmist is talking about how the shepherd leads us to that place of quietness and rest. He says, um, 
Because of their timidity, sheep refuse to lie down unless they're free from all fear. Having grown up on a farm where there were sheep, I believe that to be absolutely true. Um, Secondly, sheep will not lie down unless they're free from friction with other sheep within the flock. Um, Don't go to sleep when your neighbor's not favorable to you. Uh, Or if they're tormented by flies or parasites, sheep will not lie down. And lastly, sheep will not lie down so long as they feel in need of finding food. And just that insight, I think it's a great picture, a wonderful picture for all Christians, but particularly for Christian leaders in the church to ponder. Have you ever wondered why God's people make such loud bleating noises from time to time? Well, it's basically because their needs, their fundamental needs aren't being met. They may be fearful. And, and, and someone who appears to be God's child, um, we, we, we don't know the heart. Only God knows the heart. They may actually be fearful of their eternal security. They may have been a church member for a long, long time. They may have been baptized. They may be a card-carrying Baptist saying all the right things, but they still might in their heart of hearts not be sure whether the issue of their sin has been settled once and for all. I had such an experience just this last week where I got an emergency call from somebody. I won't mention who, but a long-time church member said, I'm just not sure whether the issue of sin has been dealt with in my life. So we went to God's Word and we looked through it. And after we saw just how clearly uh, Jesus explains in His Word that He settled the matter for us at Calvary, the person sat back and said, what a relief. What a relief. Been a member of Charlotte Chapel for years and years and years but was fearful. Is that your experience? Has the old account really been settled long ago? Do you know that Jesus has really paid the price? Are you really free from the burden of the past or from existing things? They may also um, be relationship difficulties with other Christians. That's why some people make a lot of noise because of friction in the church. It may actually be that, that... The person who's making the noise is actually the source of the friction. But there hasn't been peace among the sheep. And and as leaders, we need to get alongside people. We also need to be aware of wolves in sheep's clothing. People who pretend to be sheep but have a different agenda than following the shepherd. But have come in among us simply to decimate, simply to destroy, simply just to create problems. A friend of mine in the United States says he's got a wonderful saying. He says it with a wonderful southern drawl. He says, we have a saying back in the States that most churches are just two good funerals away from revival. Wow. There could be somebody in the church who's alive and if they were dead, we'd be better off without them is what he's saying. Friction in the congregation. Uh, The picture that we have here that Keller opens up for us that there might actually be sin or other health-related torments that need to be addressed. See, there's nothing more disheartening or insensitive than telling somebody who is spiritually or mentally distressed to reflect on Romans 8.28 and pull themselves together. Now, for those of you who don't know, Romans 8.28 says, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. And that's great. That's God's word, and it's true but it can be inappropriate to apply it before we've understood the question. That's the answer. But if we don't know the question, 
then we have no right to apply it. So we've got to come alongside people and understand exactly why they're being tormented over sin or health issues. Um, fourthly, reflecting what Keller says about the sheep, people just simply may not be satisfied with their spiritual diet. Uh, we are fed good food from the pulpit here in Charlotte Chapel. Well, we certainly are when I'm not preaching. Uh, that's very true. When Peter and Collins opens up the word, we just, we're, we're fed. It's, it's rich, fine fare. But you know, as graciously as I can say it, it may go over the heads of some. So we need to be able to apply it down to the level where it can touch everyone. Sometimes the milky stuff that's fed out from some pulpits is just not meaty enough for others. And it's so difficult to get the balance. God's word needs to be appropriately fed at the level at which his children have an appetite and palate for it. So food has to be served appropriate to people's stage of development and understanding. So it is with God's word. But the psalmist here is confident that the Lord, the shepherd, knows all these things, and so he simply needs to trust him and follow. Now that's what sheep do with shepherds in the Near East. Uh, shepherds in this country have quad bikes and sheepdogs, and they chase around after the sheep, corralling them. Um, it's a modern shepherding uh, technique. It, it's not the one that's addressed here. The shepherd in the Near East knows all of his sheep by name. They know the sound of his voice. And even when they're pasturing together with other sheep and goats and other animals in the open countryside, when the shepherd says it's time to move on, he calls them out, each individually by name. Up to 50 names at a time, and the sheep go, oh, that's my shepherd. Listen to its name, and they simply walk after him. The shepherd has a wonderful uh, device available to him. If the sheep don't come, uh, very often he'll go back and he'll take his stick or his rod, not his staff by which he leads and guides them, but he's actually got this thing that looks like a club. And, and he uses it to defend the sheep from, from wolves and other predators. But he also uses it for the sheep's sake sometimes to, to hobble it. He, he will virtually break its leg in an act of kindness. If the sheep is prone to straying or not keeping up, the shepherd will go and say, Do you know what? Have a bit of that. Now you can't walk at all, so I'll carry you. And I'll carry you until the leg sets. And after the leg set, the sheep is faithfully loyal to that shepherd and walks after it. That's what God does when he disciplines his children. He sometimes allows us to have that difficult, hard encounter because he wants us to walk with him. You see, Christianity is primarily about a relationship. It's not about a religion. To have activity without relationship misses the entire point of what this psalm is saying. Many Christians and many churches get it the wrong way around. They run around all busily doing ministry until they're too tired to continue. But the psalm begins with a place of quiet rest. The shepherd leads us into quietness and rest so that we may serve. You notice that the experience in the dark valley of the shadow of death comes after resting. So we rest in where the shepherd leads us to with all the provision that he makes for us, body, soul, and spirit so that we can go out and face the difficulties of life. We must never get that order the wrong way around. That causes burnout, causes stress, causes tiredness. But those that wait in the Lord will renew their strength. The late Corrie Ten Boom used to say that 20 minutes in the presence of God, praying in the Spirit, 
is as much satisfaction as a good night's sleep. Um, we need our good night's sleep, but guys, if you haven't had one recently because of pressure, then just draw aside and be in the Savior's presence. Learn to practice the presence of God, and you will find refreshment. That's what's being promised here. Now, the primary blessings is, as I've already said, the shepherd himself. It's not what he gives us. It's who he is. And uh, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Why? What does the psalm say? For thou art with me. And even in the dark valley that you're in just now, be assured that it's a passing through experience. You're not there to stay. And the rod and staff of God's discipline and guidance, they comfort you in the midst of that. The blessing of the shepherd is not an eradication of our problems. The blessing of the shepherd is not an eradication of our enemies. The blessing of our shepherd is a table for two prepared in the presence of our enemies, be they people or problems. The second point I want to make in a much shorter one, let's deal with it quickly, is that the shepherd, as described here, is also my gracious host, and he protects from the fear of danger. The pastoral emphasis changes slightly in the remaining two verses from the tranquility and the provision secured by the Lord as shepherd in the open countryside to the more settled picture of friends enjoying good food and wine together in the more convivial setting of the host's home. Now, whatever the psalmist intended us to understand from this change of image, we're not absolutely sure, but one thing I think we can be sure about is that it's still about relationship. The shepherd with the sheep, that's about relationship. And the host with his guests is about relationship. So the Lord as host. He is my friend in life. Uh, the picture here is one of lavish hospitality. The host described here does, does two quite extraordinary things. First of all, he prepares a table. The table, of course, is symbolic of our fellowship with him. And it's the relationship that is the source of our joy. Uh, it's not the fact that we're eating that's to do with a physical satisfaction. But it's the fact that we're actually eating at the king's table. That's what the psalmist is saying is the source of joy. I've been invited to share in fellowship with the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings with no less than Jesus Christ. That's the joy. Our verse of the year, the joy of the Lord is our strength. It's not what the Lord gives us. Oh, if only the Lord would give me a marriage partner. If only the Lord would give me a job. If only the Lord would give me health. If only the Lord would go, you know, I'd be happy. No, you wouldn't. Only the Lord himself in relationship with us can satisfy. That's the picture that we have here. He prepares a table. He also anoints our head with oil. Oil symbolizes the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. And my cup overflows with the Holy Spirit. God not only wants us to have our cup full of the Holy Spirit, but he wants us to be overflowing with the Holy Spirit. God's life living in me and through me that enables me to be a Christian. I cannot live the Christian life in my own strength. I was never asked to live the Christian life in my own strength. I was never called to live the Christian life in my own strength. I wasn't called to be a good, respectable member of Charlotte Chapel. I was called to be a follower of Jesus. And the only way I can do that is to allow his life to live through me. I can't do it, and neither can you. So stop trying. Give up on trying to be a good Christian. You'll never make it. Give up on taking advice from other well-meaning good Christians So how to be a good Christian. They don't know what they're talking about. Unless you're in a relationship with Jesus. 
let you know the power of the Holy Spirit living through you. The life hasn't begun. You see, the test is this. If the Holy Spirit fills us, then he will overflow even when we're tired or we're threatened. Oh, I wouldn't have spoken to you that way if I wasn't tired. (laughs) You wouldn't have spoken to me that way if the Holy Spirit flowed through you even when you're tired. Oh, if circumstances in life were different, I'd be much less irritable. If the Holy Spirit worked in us and lived through us, we'd always be much less irritable. You see the picture? That's the pattern. I wouldn't sin so much if only I could be free. No, you wouldn't sin so much if the Holy Spirit just lived and worked through you. That's what the psalmist's saying here. He anoints my head with oil. My cup overflows. I can't remember who it was now, but somebody was going into, I think it was with Hudson Taylor. Somebody was going into the, wanted to become a missionary. And, and I'm sure it was Taylor, filled up a glass right to the top with water and set it on the table. And, and in front of this young person, this wannabe missionary said, if you go into the mission field and you encounter such and such a difficulty, how will you react? And the missionary tried to give a very, very good answer. Hudson Taylor thumped the table and the water spilled over onto the table. He said, whatever you are full of when you go to serve God in mission is what will flow out of you. Don't try to be clever and smart. If the Holy Spirit's not in you, then it will be you that overflows. But if we're full of God, then whatever circumstance we face in life, that's what comes out. Particularly in our speech, Jesus himself says that the mouth is the overflow of the heart. Do you want to know why some Christians are crabbit and critical? Do you want to know why some Christians complain about anything and everything? Because the love of God doesn't fill their heart. That's why. It's a biblical definition of why people are mean in church. Because their mouth speaks out of the overflow of their heart. I'm a kind of simple guy. That's the way I see it. I don't believe there is another answer. And finally, he's our my friend in eternity. See, the life portrayed in Psalm 23 is one of pilgrimage. And our final destination should define everything that we do in the meantime. Just as I come to close, can I ask us as a church, because it's a very real um, thing for us to ponder on just now. As, as Peter has announced his intentions to move on into another aspect of fruitful ministry apart from Charlotte Chapel, and we think about coming to listen to Paul Rees as a potential new senior pastor, how will you evaluate him? Will you do it on the basis of uh, whether or not you think he's a good preacher by your standards, um, academically, intellectually, because of a feel-good factor for you? Because all preaching, if it's anointed of God, actually points us to Jesus. That's an acid test. As we listen to this guy next week, if he doesn't point us to Jesus, then he's missed the point. Scripture must be used to interpret Scripture. Not just clever things that other people have said about it, but does it have a scriptural backing and an analysis to it? And and something that some of us call the Monday morning test of listening to God's Word being preached. Will I be different tomorrow because of what I've heard in God's Word today? 
Does the word of God preach change who you are as a person? Because it's only Jesus that's supposed to be the same yesterday, today, and forever. We're supposed to be changing all the time. And so if as a Christian, you've sat under, it doesn't matter whose ministry it is, and you've not changed, then something's not as God intends it to be. It could just be your heart and your stubbornness to the word being preached. But brother and sister in Christ, if you're not moving on into Jesus and growing up in him and becoming mature, and the things that used to bother you six years ago, if they're still bothering you now, then you've got an issue you need to address. You need to have the Lord shepherd you through all the changing scenes and times of life. I've completely run out of time this morning. I wanted you to share uh, with you in conclusion that the Lord leads me all the way. Example from uh, Fanny J. Crosby, who wrote two of the hymns that we sang today, and I was going to quote another one, um, entitled, All the Way My Savior Leads Me. I don't have time to do that. But um, quick story from her life. She was caught a cold when she was six weeks old. There wasn't a medical practitioner around to diagnose and to help her. So a random man stepped up with a solution to her problem with the weeping eyes. He said, boiling hot poultices on both eyes. Mrs. Crosby, that'll cure your daughter's cold. Blinded her for life. Her life was dedicated in service to God despite all that she experienced as a child and her disability. She wrote over 8,000 hymns, many of which we still have. We sung two of them today. And at one stage in her life, she was about eight years old when she wrote, um, Oh, what a happy soul I am. Although I cannot see, I am resolved that in this world contented I will be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. To weep and sigh because I'm blind, I cannot and I won't. She later remarked that it seemed uh, God's provision for her that she should be blind all her life, and she thanked him for that dispensation. If perfect earthly sight were offered to me tomorrow, I would not accept it. I might not have sung hymns to the praise of God had I been distracted by the beautiful, interesting things about me. And she also said that when I get to heaven... The first face that shall ever gladden my sight will be that of my Savior. Is that your passion? Is that your passion? Is that my passion? That I long to see Jesus. Because if it's not, then we must come in repentance to the foot of the cross and put right things right between God and us. But if it is, then it will most certainly affect everything that you do and how you relate to others around you, especially in the church. If Jesus really is our passion, then that affects how we talk to and how we behave towards other people in the church. If the Lord is your shepherd, what more shall you want? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word.